Well, I'd like you to turn to Haggai if you're not there already. And uh, when you get there, if you're not sure where to find it, turn to Matthew, first book in the New Testament. When you get to Matthew, turn left, go back three books, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, third from the last of the Old Testament prophets. And um, as we go there this morning, I want to kind of bring you up to speed on where the history is. Because the, the first nine minor prophets that we have been studying, for the most part, have been prophesying to the kingdoms, the nations of Israel and Judah. And I take you back to Solomon's day, after his death, when the kingdom was divided, you will recall that the ten tribes in the north pulled away from the, the lineage of David, Solomon and Rehoboam, they pulled away and they established their own kingdom kind of in rebellion up on the north side and Samaria was their capital and the southern kingdom consisted of only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And most of the prophets we've studied, in fact all of them, some of them have had words for other nations like Jonah to Nineveh, but most of the prophets we've studied have been prophesying to these two kingdoms under the banner of Israel during their times of backsliding and difficulty. And if you look at the two kingdoms, you will recall that in the north, as they pulled away from Jerusalem in the center of worship, and they organized themselves under another group of kings, that they consolidated the religious center in the north, away from Jerusalem, and pulled away to some extent in order to get the people to focus in a new direction. The consequence of that was that they, they declined in apostasy. They constantly went away from God. So that in the north, there was never a revival. There was never a turnaround. They declined consistently, and God kept warning them and kept warning them. But king after king would come, and they went from bad to worse. And finally, uh, in the prophecy of God, the Assyrians overran them in 722, and we really never heard from those ten tribes again. To this day, they were scattered throughout the pagan uh, kingdoms, and we've never heard from them again for all intents and purposes. The northern tribes just disappeared into the history of the world. The southern two tribes, however, stayed under the Davidic dynasty. That means the, the family line, the bloodline of David, ran through all the kings, and the southern tribes had periods of revival. And so there were these uh, periods of decline followed by a good king who would turn the hearts back to the Lord and there would be kind of a, an upswing in moral and spiritual righteousness and the nation would be revived for a while, but then they went downhill again. So instead of a steady decline, there was, was more like a sawtooth, but they were still headed toward the bottom. And God sent prophet after prophet saying, if you don't turn back, if you don't turn away, you two are going to go into exile. You're going to, you're going to be overrun. And surely enough, that's exactly what happened when in 586, Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians finally came into Jerusalem, ransacked the town, 
demolished Jerusalem, tore down the temple, and carried off the inhabitants of Jerusalem into exile. One of the things that is startling about that reality is although God promised revival and promised recovery to them, the nation of Israel, and, and, and when we speak of Israel now, we're only talking about Judah and Benjamin and their survivors. The other group is gone. We're only talking about those southern tribes. But the, from the time that Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem and tore it down, the nation of Israel did not exist again as a sovereign independent nation until 1948, when after World War II and after the horrible Holocaust of, of Hitler, there was a movement to return to the land of Palestine and rebuild the nation of Israel as a sovereign independent state. For over 2,500 years, the nation of Israel did not exist as a sovereign and independent state. Even though they came back, they were under... Uh, they were a subject people, a subject nationality, under other kings and rulers. And God had said, this is what's going to happen if, if you do not turn back to me. Now, as we listen to those last day prophets before the exile to Babylon, the economic circumstances of Israel, of Judah, were different than what we're going to find in Haggai this morning. They were actually living in economic prosperity. The people had accumulated a certain amount of wealth. They were very much into materialism. And even though there was a wide disparity between the lower class and the middle class and upper class, the lower class were being oppressed by the people in charge and in power, nothing new under the sun, but that, and that was one of the things God had trouble with them over, was how they treated the poor. But, but nonetheless, there was relative economic prosperity, so that they were doing well, and they had a lot of things. So when Judah went into captivity to Babylon, those people lost their wealth. It was a radical transformation for them. They were losing generations of accumulated materialistic blessing. When they ended up as a captive people in Babylon, they were slaves in a foreign country. It was a whole different situation for them. As we come to Haggai this morning, we come to a period of time when some of the exiles, and mostly their children, are being allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now, I want to tell you how that came about, and then I want to set the scene for you as we open the book of Haggai. One of the reasons that liberal scholars, again, I, I always feel like I'm stating an oxymoron when I say that, but one of, one of the reasons that liberals have a hard time believing that Isaiah truly prophesied 700 years uh, before Christ 
is because he named a king by name who would be among the Babylonians by the name of Cyrus. And in Isaiah chapter 40 and 41 and 42 and following, Isaiah, through the prophetic inspiration of God, names Cyrus by name, even though it was 150 years before he was even going to be born. He calls him by name, and he says, God has appointed you, Cyrus, to be my servant to restore Jerusalem. It's kind of, kind of interesting. Because when Cyrus came to power after Nebuchadnezzar and that whole period of time with the Babylonians, when Cyrus came to power, the, the philosophy of the Babylonians had been yank people out of their motherland and bring them somewhere else and upset their lives so that they will be easier to control. Cyrus had a totally different mentality. His mindset was, if we let them go back to their homeland and re-establish their culture and their worship centers, they will be more content and they will love the mother kingdom more. And so Cyrus issued a decree. And the decree included the exiles from Jerusalem. And God put this in his heart. You see how that works? Here God is working through a, a pagan king, putting a plan in his heart that is exactly coincident with his purposes. I love that. You know, Proverbs says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wishes. Don't worry about whether the president or the king is a Christian or not a Christian. God's purposes are going to be accomplished. God will get his will done. Well, here's Cyrus saying a decree to the exiles. Go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and worship your God there. Everyone that wants to go back can go. I will even return to you all of the vessels and the utensils and the, the furnishings of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar took. I will give it to you out of the king's treasury, and you can take it back with you. And I will issue a decree that if there's anyone that doesn't want to go back, you are to give an offering to the people who do, so that they can have the, the funds and the wherewithal to rebuild the temple. And you go back to Jerusalem, and you rebuild the temple, and you worship your God in Jerusalem. Now, this is a tremendous event. And, and let me localize Haggai for you in the scriptures. We're talking history. The historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah correspond exactly with Haggai and Zechariah and even Malachi. Ezra tells the story of the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah tells the story of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries whom God raised up to prophesy during that time to encourage the people in the work. So when you're trying to get your Bible history in your mind, I, I told the first group this morning, 8 o'clock service, you can memorize simply 5, 12, 5, 5, and 12. And what that relates to is there's five books of Moses, 
followed by 12 books of history. And the last of the books of the history are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra and Nehemiah are the last two books dealing with this post-exilic period, after the exile. And then there's five books of poetry, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And there are five major prophets and twelve minor prophets. So five, twelve, five, five, and twelve. You can kind of hang your Old Testament on that numeric sequence. And you can take Haggai and Zechariah and superimpose them with Ezra and Nehemiah. And now you've got the historical context. And I want to bring out something from Ezra chapter 1 that is very important. Because we have a tendency to look, every time we talk about these naughty Jews, you know, we have a tendency to look at them and say, those people, they're always rebellious and they're always cantankerous and ornery and, and, you know, they're bad people. Well, if you go and read the opening chapters of Ezra, you find that these were not bad people who went back to Jerusalem. In fact, when Cyrus said you can go back, the Scripture says in Ezra, all upon whom the Spirit of the Lord came and anointed, these are the people that went back. Friends, these were pioneers. These were revived people. There were two group, There were two types of people that went back. There were the old people who remembered what it was like. And they said, we long to go home. Take us home. And when, when the opportunity came, you know, they, they were in their 80s and probably 90s, but they, like Caleb, who at 80 years of age said, give me that mountain. You know, they, they said, we're going to go back. And there were young people, young families that, that had heard the stories and had the vision. And they, they heard their parents and their grandparents talking about the glories of Jerusalem. In fact, one of the Psalms paints a very poignant image of the Jews in exile. They've hung their harps in the willow trees. And the people of Babylon are saying, sing us a song of Zion. And they said, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a land that is not ours? Their hearts were broken. They were sad and, and discouraged. And they, they told their children and they told their grandchildren about all the glory of Solomon's temple and all the beauty of Jerusalem and all the joys of being in their own land. And when the opportunity came, the Spirit of God came upon some of those younger people and inspired them to follow the Lord and go back and rebuild the ancient ruins and, and, and be a part of that anointed group that recovered Israel. And so they went with vision and they went with passion and they went because they loved the Lord. So as we talk about them this morning, I want you to keep in mind that these are people who started out well and ran with a purpose. But after they moved back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and by the way, it was broken down. Nebuchadnezzar had torn the thing apart and stolen all the gold and the walls of the, of the city were torn down and have, have you ever been to like a ghost town out west or to, 
a place where buildings have been abandoned for decades, houses that haven't been lived in for decades. You ever? How many of you have ever been in an old house like that? Nobody's lived in for you know decades. Some of you have. Isn't, isn't that sad? You know, there's dust everywhere, and the linoleum is kind of peeling up, and the windows, the glass is broken or falling out, and the doors don't work so well, and, you know, everything is a mess. And, and can you imagine what it is like then to recover that, to restore it, to, to bring it back to a livable condition? Well, that's what they found when they went back to Jerusalem. But they went back to build the temple. And Cyrus had given them the decree and, and the funds and, and even the, the utensils of the old temple to take back with them. And they went with passion. And as soon as they got back to the land of Palestine, guess who they ran into? The Palestinians. They were called Samaritans in those days, but they were the Palestinians. And guess what? Guess who did not want them there? Does this sound like today's paper? You know, the Palestinians. They said, what do you, we don't want you back here. What are you doing here? And they began to give them grief. They tried to thwart their efforts. They dogged their steps. Every time they went into the forest to get lumber, they threatened them, and, and they felt like they were not safe, and they weren't secure. And eventually, the Samaritans sent a letter to Cyrus and said, they didn't tell him he didn't know what he was doing. That wasn't good, if you were under a king, uh, to tell the king he was stupid. But they basically said, if you search the records, you'll find this is a rebellious, stubborn, ornery people. Well, they were probably right on that score. And they said, if they rebuild Jerusalem, they're going to rebel against the kingdom. And they're going to turn away from you. And you'll never be able to conquer this people again. They're, they're only out to pull away from the kingdom. Not that the Samaritans loved the, the Babylonians any more than the Jews did, but they certainly didn't want the Jews back there in Palestine. And so... The work came to a halt while the investigation began to be pursued. Now, here's the situation. The decree of Cyrus to go back and rebuild Jerusalem was 16 years prior to the prophecy of Haggai. So for 16 years, these people had been in Jerusalem having a tough time. Sixteen years is almost enough time to raise a family. Sixteen years in which to try to start gardens, in which to recover the fields for, for harvest, to build up the herds and the flocks. Sixteen years to try to clean out those old houses and restore them to some living condition. And meanwhile, the Samaritans are pummeling them every chance they get, and life in Jerusalem has become hard. And so the work on the temple came to a halt, and those people with passion and vision 
have now disintegrated to just trying to hang on and make life happen on a daily basis. Now we open the page on Haggai's prophecy. And 16 years later, historically, Cyrus died. His son Cambyses came to the throne, but he committed suicide. And the whole kingdom was thrown into pandemonium. And finally, Darius the Mede rose up to consolidate everybody again. And Darius is the one who said, it's okay to start again. So we're about two years into Darius' reign. He's kind of got a handle on the kingdom. And he's told the Jews it's okay. And Haggai rises to the occasion. Look with me in Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house, this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Did any of you ever feel like that, by the way, when you get your paycheck? <laughs> you come home and you put it into a purse with holes. Where did my money go? And I no sooner get it than it's gone out the door. I can hardly get ahead. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate. While each of you runs to his own house, therefore because of the sky, Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I called for a drought on the land, in the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, in the oil, and on what the ground produces, on men, on, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Well, friends, there's a powerful lesson here. Haggai, the first message he says to the people is, listen, now these are people I want you to keep in mind. These are not the idolatrous, mercenary, rich, filthy, rich rebels that God sent into exile. These are people who came back with a right spirit, hungry to serve God, hungry to do His work. They got thwarted. They got stopped in their tracks. They got frustrated. And life became difficult. And in the process, they lost sight of what they were about. 
And they came to the conclusion, and how many of us have ever done this? They came to the conclusion, this is not the time. This must not be the time to rebuild the house of the Lord. What are they saying? Well, it looked good, and Cyrus gave us his blessing, and doors were open for us, and and we had all this stuff to start with, but, oh man, we didn't count on the Samaritans. We didn't count on the mess. We didn't count on the difficulties. This is too hard. We must have gotten our wires crossed. We must have not heard the Lord. This must not be the time. How many of you have ever experienced something like that in your life? When you felt God was leading you to do something, when you felt His hand was upon you, when you set out to do it, and then you started hitting opposition. There's a couple of things that we need to take, just little lessons we need to take. Well, actually, they're big. They're little points, but they're big lessons. The will of God is not always reflected in circumstances. Many times people say, everything's going my way, this must be the will of God. Maybe not. Other times people say, I've hit all kind of roadblocks. This must not be the right time. Maybe it is. Maybe you're encountering opposition because the enemy is trying to thwart the work of God and you need to press through. The people drew this conclusion. This is not God's timing. This must be the wrong time because we've had all this trouble. The other lesson I think that's buried in here is one that the church today faces mightily in this country. And we face in McHenry, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, McHenry is still largely a bedroom community. Most people who live here do not work in the town. And and many of them commute to other jobs, and so many people in McHenry, have 12-hour work days. They have a commute on both ends of an 8- to 10-hour day. And most families are are two-wage earner families. And we're busy. And we're busy trying to make life work. And in the midst of all of that, there's all of the extracurriculars. The kids have soccer, and they have baseball, and they have school sports practice, and they have band, and and they have uh, scouts, and they have music lessons, and they have all these other things going on, and and, and we have yard work, and we have housework, and we have the cars to maintain, and we have all of these things that constantly demand our time simply trying to get by. And I do believe that one of the greatest weapons the enemy uses against the kingdom of God is to get the people of the kingdom busy with just living life so that they are distracted from the purpose of life, which is the Lord Jesus Christ in the advance of His kingdom. And these people meant well, but they got sidetracked. 
And in the course of it, they began to turn their attention to just getting by. And God raises this question, and it's a question each one of us needs to ask. Because I cannot stand here this morning and tell you that you personally or your family is in such and such a situation because of this or that or the other. I cannot be prescriptive in that sense, but I know who can, and that's God. If you seek the Lord, He can give you insight. We're in a time of economic crisis in our country and also in the world. I believe unemployment in Spain is greater than 20%. That's tough. We're at 10 or 11 or 9, depending on whose statistics you're looking at, but some countries have even greater uh, unemployment. These are difficult economic times. There's no question about it. And everyone suffers when the economy suffers. But there's also the microeconomics, and by that I mean your own family, your own household, your own situation. And God says to these people, has it ever occurred to you to ask why you're having so much trouble making a living? Maybe it's because you forgot me. In fact, he says rather clearly, I'm the one that has blown your prophets away. I'm the one that has sent the drought. I'm the one that has frustrated the harvest because, hey, you forgot me. You're not paying attention to me. I sent you back there to build my house. And what did you do? You built your house. You've got your priorities out of whack. And if you're wondering why there's leanness, it's because I'm frustrating you. Sometimes God brings the adversity into our lives to get our attention and to realign our focus. I asked a question on the back of the study guide for you to discuss in your group, so I'll give you a little bit of insight Haggai starts out saying, you dwell in paneled houses while my house lies in ruin. Now, it took wood to panel their own homes, just as it took wood to repair the temple. And the wood did not grow in Jerusalem. It was outside on the hillsides in the forest. So how did they get the wood for their own house? They figured out how to do that. But they couldn't figure out how to get the wood to repair the temple. By the way, the scripture here is not condoning drunkenness. When he says you drink and there's not enough to become drunk, he's just pointing out the fact that if you did get so miserable, you decided to tie one on, there's not enough wine in your cupboard to get drunk on. You don't have enough food. You're struggling here. And you need to ask why. And Haggai says the reason is because you have not put the Lord first. And as a consequence of that, there's trouble. Now, this was the first sermon that he preached. In fact, there are four messages here in Haggai's short little book. And, and we don't have to assume that, he, uh, that, that all he said was what is recorded. This is the summary of the message, you know, otherwise he was the shortest 
preacher in history, because they're only a few verses long. But he preached four sermons between August and December of 520 B.C. We know exactly when this guy preached. We know exactly what time it was, because he marked it very clearly by Darius' reign. And, and he tells us, and this first sermon was delivered in August, latter part of August in 520 B.C. And so, uh, the, the verses that follow, beginning in verse 12, is kind of like a little inter, intermission to give us some historical context. And then in chapter 2, he begins his second message, and it goes like this. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoiadak the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoiadak the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. For the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt... My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all the nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now this second sermon is a very interesting sermon. Because after the first one, the, the, the history tells us that the people got busy and went back to work. But no sooner had they done that then there was kind of a, a, a spirit of discouragement because some of the older people that had returned that had seen, they, they were in their teens or 20s when Solomon's temple was standing. And Ezra gives us some interesting insight. Ezra says on the day when the foundations of the rebuilt temple were laid. Two things happened. The young people who laid the foundations that had never seen Jerusalem, because they weren't even born there, they were born in Babylon, they were dancing and shouting and rejoicing and laughing and celebrating in the streets. We've, we've laid the foundations for the temple of God! Great hooray! And there were the old folks who remembered Solomon's temple. And they were weeping. Oh, it's so small. It's nothing like it used to be. They were so sad. You know, and, you, and, and Ezra says the noise of both crowds was so loud, you couldn't tell who was laughing and who was crying. 
Uh, it was just it was just chaos. You know, all the old people were like this, and the young people were shouting for joy. And sixteen years later, these old folks, the ones that are still hanging on, they got to be ninety by now. They're saying, "This is not like it used to be. This is just not the way I remember." And it was bringing a spirit of discouragement. And Haggai said, listen, it's not about the temple. It's about the Lord. It has nothing to do with your building or your program. It has to do with my spirit. And my promise when you left Egypt that my spirit would dwell in your midst is still valid. I will be with you. We need to remember that, friends. Some of us here this morning remember the revival of the 70s. We remember when you would give an invitation and people would come forward for an hour and a half at the end of a service. We remember when the Spirit of God would fall on a campus or fall upon a church. I remember when the Spirit of God fell upon our high school and and a town that was the third worst in the state of Florida for drug abuse and, and one of the greatest ports of entry through the Tampa port for drug abuse. And when God's Spirit fell upon the campus, one evening in our youth meeting, Carrie, we had 400 high school students in church. And believe me, they had not been there before that week. And I remember the, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And one day after a month or two in the revival, the, the county sheriff called up our youth pastor and he said, I do not know what's going on at that church. But what I do know is that many of the main suppliers of drugs have left the region because they have no market. Whatever you're doing, it has done more to alter the drug traffic in this town than anything that has ever been done before. I remember those days. Some, of, some people remember the glory days of other days gone by. We remember the great crusades of Billy Graham that were on national television every night that he preached. We remember those old times and we say those were the days when God was active. This is a dry period. Where is the Lord? This is nothing like it used to be. And that's exactly what was happening in Jerusalem. And Haggai was saying, stop talking like that. The Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. And looking forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, there comes a time when we need to just take our eyes off the past. It is the past. And we need to put our eyes on what God is going to do next. We need to refocus our attention. We need to see what God is about because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's not in a program, it's not in a ministry, it's not in a building that the Spirit of God works. It's by His presence. 
And he can use us as mightily as he... And, and Haggai preached this message and said, Be encouraged. Be encouraged. The third sermon he preached begins in verse 10 of chapter 2. On the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food or wine or oil or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest said, well, no. And then Haggai said, okay, if one who is unclean because he's touched a corpse or in any of these, will the latter become unclean if he touches something else? And they said, well, yes. So Haggai answered and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider, from this day onward, before one stone was placed upon another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would only be ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty, there would only be twenty. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting and wind, with blasting wind and mildew and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree, though it has not borne fruit, yet from this day on I will bless you. Now you say, what in the world is that sermon about? Well, I've got about 30 seconds to tell you. <laughs> Go fast. Essentially, this, is, this takes more historical context than we can get from this book. But if you put it all together, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, you put them all together, you find out this is what was going on. The people were saying, Haggai's been preaching about two months now, okay? And people have gotten their hearts right. All right, we're going to... We're going to start work on the temple. We're going to forget the past. We're going to go forward. We're going to move ahead. Where's the blessing? Where's my Mercedes? I'm doing everything right. Where's the blessing? I should have a heart. My barn should be full. My harvest should be plentiful. Everything should be fixed. I want to tell you right now, straight up, friends, the prosperity gospel is a lie. And I also want us to know, very practically speaking, that what it took you 20 years to mess up is going to take more than a few days to straighten out. And what God is saying here is, this land has been polluted by decades of rebellion. And you yourselves have been here for 16 years and you've gotten sidetracked. Just because you've turned back to me this moment does not mean that tomorrow you're going to wake up and everything's going to be fine. It's going to take a a while, a time to recover what has been lost. Because this whole land has been polluted. It's kind of like this. A person who has an addiction to alcohol, and I want to be very clear about this because this is absolutely true. A person who's had an addiction to alcohol can come to Jesus Christ and be delivered from alcohol in that instant. I do not believe, I do not believe that you will be an alcoholic the rest of your life who doesn't drink. Jesus 
saves from alcoholism. He delivers people. You can be freed in the twinkling of an eye and never need a drink again by the power of Almighty God. But if you've lost your driver's license and you're hopelessly in debt and you've messed up your marriage and your family's in shambles, you can come to Jesus and and stop drinking immediately and get your life on the right track, but you're not going to get all that fixed tomorrow. It's going to take time to work back out of the hole you dug yourself. You're in a pit. It's going to take a while. But here's what God says. From this day, I will begin to bless you. And I will gradually recover from your life the years that have been lost. And you will see in due time a restoration of what you have been missing. God says, I'll take care of you. We need to recognize, friends, that God is in the healing business. And some things He will do just like that. And other things, as you set your sights in the right place and you get your priorities straight, God will over time bless you. Some years ago, I was talking with someone and they made an interesting observation to me. They said, I've seen my neighbors... And I've seen my neighbors take cruises and vacations and spend a lot of money and have all these kinds of things. And, and, and they're kind of in the same economic category that, that uh, we're in. And I started wondering, how do they do all those things? And we're not able to. And then I realized, but we tithe. But we give 10% of our income to the Lord's work, to the kingdom. Friends, I said it just a minute ago, the prosperity gospel is a lie. The scripture does not say if you give 10% of your income to the Lord, He will give you back all kinds of money. If you give 10% of your income to the Lord, that's 10% you will live without. But what He does say is, I will bless your life. You put me first, I will honor you. You know, I I didn't call you by name, Ryan, in the first service, but you're sitting here. I can't tell a story about you <laughs> without you being here. But Ryan works hard. Ryan works hard. He works a job that's not fun. But a week ago Friday, he had the privilege of bringing a co-worker to faith in Jesus Christ, leading him in the sinner's prayer to come to eternal life. Let me tell you something. That's better than a cruise. It'll last forever. And when we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that new brother in Christ will be there with Ryan. There are other things God gives. There are other blessings He brings. The peace in your heart to lay down and go to sleep at night. The joy in your spirit of having a personal relationship with Jesus on a daily basis. The clarity of conscience that no one can accuse you. The joy of influencing others in the kingdom. 
the blessing of being an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Friends, God says, you put me first, I will bless you. I will meet you. I will care for you. Get your priorities straight. And I will walk with you. And in due season, you will see a recovery in your life that will be a great blessing. And so, I encourage you this morning. Don't have time for the fourth sermon. You're going to have to go home and read the application, but I think you've already made it. I encourage you this morning. Don't get stuck on the past. Don't get caught up in the busyness of life and forget your God. And don't assume that just because you get it right today, everything's going to be beautiful tomorrow. But know this, that when you put God first in your life, He will make you like a rock. He will fortify your life. He will bless you with His presence. And He will give you the privilege of being used in His kingdom for His glory as you walk with Him. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to take the messages of Haggai to heart. That we would allow you to transform our lives in ways that we cannot even imagine. Because we put you first. Because we allow you to reign. Because we give you first place in our heart. And it's reflected in our actions. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.